a weird thing happens. The population splits into two groups. Half the population keeps getting happier, and the other half of the population starts to go back down. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for And the Pursuit of Happiness with Arthur Brooks. We find it extraordinary and so very wise that our founders decided to emphasize the pursuit of happiness right along with life and liberty in the Declaration of Independence. But we don't spend much time in our politics or government talking about how we achieve happiness. What's the path to happiness? And why is it important to the American experiment? And could widespread unhappiness be contributing to our divisions? Who better to explore this topic with than happiness expert Arthur Brooks? Arthur is a former AEI president and best-selling author of 11 books, an Atlantic columnist, and Harvard professor who, get this you guys, he teaches a class called Leadership and Happiness. Arthur's latest book, Hot Off the Press, is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And before that, he wrote Love Your Enemies, which explores how to build a better country and mend personal relationships in our culture of political polarization. We are so lucky to have this extraordinary and inspirational man here with us because this program is packed with practical tips that you can start implementing in your life today as you pursue happiness. Before we get started, we'd like to say thanks to our friends at Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. And we'd also like to share a quick word about the Bully Pulpit, another podcast in the Democracy Group network of podcasts working to fix what's broken in our democracy. On the Bully Pulpit podcast, the Center for the Political Future at University of Southern California brings together top Republicans and Democrats to transcend partisan divisions and explore practical solutions to our most pressing national and global challenges. On the Bully Pulpit podcast, every exchange is guided by standards central to the Center for Political Futures mission, respect each other and respect the truth. Opponents are adversaries, not enemies. And if you lose, don't burn down the stadium. Subscribe to the Bully Pulpit podcast today to check it out. All right, let's get on with our program. First, I'm going to turn it over to the man himself, Arthur Brooks, for a little talk about how we can pursue happiness in our own lives. And then later, we'll bring in our facilitator, 
our friend and owner of Midtown Reader, Sally Bradshaw, who will lead us through the Q&A part of the program. Okay, so get ready to lead a happier life. Here's Arthur Brooks to show us the way. Thank you so very much. Wow, uh, what a delight to actually be in a group of people, many old friends and new, to be celebrating ideas, to be thinking new thoughts. And I know that this is something new for all of you too, because it's been a long time since a group this size has met. Thanks to you know all of the people who made this possible. What a delight that I get to talk about this new book that came out on February 15th. The motto of this organization is making pigs fly. <laughs> My last book was Love Your Enemies, and that's making pigs fly in America. <laughs> I can top that. I want to talk to you tonight about how you can be happier at 75 than you were at any other point in your life. My new book is about how to, it's your 401k plan for happiness. Now, there's people of all different ages in here. We have people who are in their 20s and in their 30s and into their 70s and maybe beyond. But one of the reasons that I wrote this book is because I think that we all need help, not just in America, but in life. We need a a strategic plan, the rules, the habits, so that we can actually get happier. Not based on self-improvement, not based on just somebody's suppositions, but based on the best science. And that's what this book is really all about. I'm going to tell you how I got started thinking about it. About eight years ago, I was was the CEO of a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the American Enterprise Institute. And um, I was doing what I always did, which was traveling around. I, would, I had to raise $50 million a year, and I gave 175 speeches. It was on the, basically, it was running for the Senate and never getting elected was my job. <laughs> and one night, I was traveling back from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., and it was nighttime. It was 11 o'clock at night, and it was dark, and everybody was either sleeping or watching the movie. And I heard a conversation of a couple behind me. It was a man and a woman. I could tell by their voices that they were probably in their, probably in their 80s, sounded by the sound of their voices. And I kind of figured they were a married couple based on their conversation. <laughs> See, I couldn't quite make out the husband's words. It was kind of mumbling. But the wife had a very piercing voice. <laughs> and I heard him say, mumble, mumble, mumble. And then she said, and this got my attention, oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. Now, now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to eavesdrop, but... <laughs> and then I hear mumble, mumble, mumble. And then she says, it's not true that nobody pays attention to you or cares about you or even remembers you. It goes on like this for 20 minutes. He's obviously inconsolable. That kind of got into... Like I'm a social scientist. I'm a behavioralist, as a matter of fact. So I'm thinking, who is this guy? He's probably somebody who, you know, never lived up to his own potential. He's disappointed with what he's done in his life. I kind of got that idea. About an hour later, we landed in Dulles, and, and everybody stood up, and the lights went on, and I was curious. So I turned around, and it was one of the most famous men in the world. You all know who this is. And I thought to myself, whoa, this is not what I was expecting. This guy's done 10 times as much with his life as I ever will do. And my idea is if I can be really successful, do all these beautiful things, he's a hero to millions of people. I'll just be happy for the rest of my life. But I just heard him telling his wife he wished he were dead. We're walking up the aisle and people are recognizing him. He's right behind me. And we get to the cockpit of the plane. We walk past and the pilot, you know, they're always standing at the cockpit door saying, thanks for flying United, folks. 
they all sound like Chuck, Chuck Yeager for some reason, I don't know. And, and he sees, he looks through me like a pane of glass, and he sees the hero, and he says, sir, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. And I turned around, and he was beaming with pride and joy and happiness. And I thought to myself, so which is it, this one or the one an hour ago? But then I had a really selfish thought. I thought, so what about me? What about me? Am I on the right path? Or am I going to wind up confessing to my wife, my long-suffering wife, Esther, on a plane when I'm 85, that I wished I were dead too? And I thought, okay, look, I'm a social scientist. I literally specialize in the science of happiness. So let's put our minds to this. What are the habits of the happiest people? See, as an economist, I know, and we all know, you don't have to be an economist to know, that you should start saving. You should put your 401k plan together so that you can retire well. <laughs> but nobody gives you a 401k plan for your happiness. You got to figure that one out for yourself. You just got to kind of hope for the best. So what are the habits of the people who wind up happier when they're old than they were when they're young? And that's what I figured out in this book, and I'm going to share it with you now, or at least a few of the secrets right now. Now, to begin with, there's a normal trajectory of happiness as we get older. There's a lot of data that show that people, they generally follow a lot of the same patterns, at least till the end. When I ask my students, now to give you a little bit of a background, I teach at the Harvard Business School a class called Leadership and Happiness. When people know that I, I teach at Harvard, they say, at the Harvard Business School, they say, do you teach accounting or marketing or finance or something technical like supply chain management or something? No, 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 I teach happiness. They don't believe me, but I do. It's the most oversubscribed class at the Harvard Business School because everybody wants happiness. And when I talk to them about it, the first day of class, I say, as you get older, will you get happier or less happy? And they all say happier, because they're optimists. They're about 27 years old on average, my MBA students. I say, imagine you're 37. Will you be happier than now, or less happy? They're all like, happier. 95% of them say happier. I say, why? They say, because I'll have it figured out. My student loans will be paid off, because it costs like a billion dollars a year to go to Harvard. And, and, and they say, well, I'm gonna be, I'll probably be married, I'll have my family situation figured out, I'll be making a bunch of money, I'll have a really good job. Very secure, be better. What about 47? They say, well, probably still happier. I say, well, what about 77? And they're like, no, I don't want that. <laughs> I say, why not? They're like, I don't know. I don't want to be old. They can't quite tell you why. I say, okay, let's look at the data. I have data on 500,000 Americans and British citizens. And by the way, I also have data on Australians and Indians and Africans and Chinese people, and it's all the same every place. These patterns are the same all over the world. How much happier do you get as you get older? It turns out that happiness, generally speaking, declines from early 20s all the way through to the early 50s. Not a lot, just gradually. We often ask psychologists why this is, and there are a bunch of standard explanations. One is that, well, you think you're going to be happier, but when you're not, it's disappointing. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Others think there are physiological explanations for it. But the most compelling is what psychologists euphemistically refer to as family complications. That's secret code for teenage kids. 
and I remember this. I remember, you know, it's like your kids are born and it's great and it's going to be so fun when they get older. We can play football together. We can go fishing together. And I remember when I was in my late 40s and um, my son Carlos, oh man, boy was he giving me a run for my money. You know, we, he's my middle child. We all have a middle child. Or if you have three, at least, you have a middle child. And I can do math. And... Uh, I remember it was just, it was one parent-teacher conference after another. It was like, not getting, his grades are inadequate, he might not graduate. It was so stressful, it was horrible. Finally, one night we're in the car coming back from one of these parent-teacher conferences, my wife, who's an optimist, she says, at least we know he's not cheating, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, your, your, your happiness, you think it's going to go up, but it does the opposite. But then there's good news. They move out. <laughs> and in your early 50s, almost everybody starts getting happier. Almost everybody starts getting happier. Men, women, people all over the world. Happiness reinflects. And almost everybody gets this 15-year bonanza in happiness. It's the most amazing thing. It's the most robust trend that we can see. It goes up and up and up and up till the late 60s. Then a weird thing happens. The population splits into two groups. It's the only time it happens. Half the population keeps getting happier, and the other half of the population starts to go back down. Now, I know what was going on with the man on the plane. He was on that lower branch. But I know what I want for me, and I know what I want for you, which is the upper branch. So, here's the question that I had. The hero on the plane, Literally one of the most successful people in the world, beloved by all, detested by none. Either he was an outlier, or there's something about worldly success that I don't quite understand. So I started looking into it. Who tends to be on the lower branch? And the answer is the strivers, the hard workers, the people who achieve a lot early in life. These are the ones, paradoxically, who struggle the most. Now, I don't want to find this. This is bad news. Because we're all working to achieve a lot and do a lot with our lives. My students in particular. A lot of you were thinking early on, work, 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 achieve, 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 succeed, 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 and then dine out on it for the rest of your life. Turns out it doesn't work that way. There's two social psychologists at the University of Texas named Carol and Charles Holohan, a married couple. And they've done work on, on how people feel about their lives in their 80s if they were identified as high achievers early on in their lives. The more likely you were to be identified as genius-level talent early on, the more likely you are to be disappointed with your life in your 80s. This is the striver's curse. <laughs> it doesn't turn out the way that we want. So here's the next question. Does it have to be that way? Let me pause on that for a second, because at this point in my research, again, I'm doing this research for me. This isn't research. This is me-search. And I want to know whether or not there are cases of this in history. So I started looking at people who were identified as the greatest geniuses early on. And I want to know how it turned out when they got older. If I were to ask you to list the five greatest scientists in the past 500 years, on every single one of your lists we'd find Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin it literally changed the way that we see science and the natural world permanently and completely. Now, Charles Darwin's life is one of unbelievable early accomplishment. 
He was an unremarkable student. Actually, he was a very lazy student. And part of the reason is because he was being forced to become a clergyman. He didn't want that. He wanted to be a scientist. But he wasn't really a hard worker even in the sciences. But he got a lucky break after, after he went to university. At age 22, he was selected to be the naturalist on the Beagle. That was a, a sailing ship that was going to have a five-year expedition around the world looking for zoological and botanical samples to send back to be studied by scientists all over Europe. He, he got very famous in his absence because he was sending back these incredible animal carcasses and, and eye-popping plants that nobody had ever seen before. But that was nothing compared to what was about to happen. At 27, he came back to England and dropped an intellectual atomic bomb, which was the theory of evolution. His theory of natural selection literally changed the way that everybody saw the natural world. Controversial, absolutely. A nightmare for lots of people. Changed science completely. And he dined out on his incredible fame. He was a star. He was the most famous scientist in Europe, in the world, effectively, for 30 straight years. He was rich. He was famous, and he loved it. He went from party to party. He wrote book after book. But then something happened around age 50. He hit a wall, and he couldn't produce anymore. Now, what happened was his bad study habits caught up with him. And to, to do more research, he needed more math ability than he had and more statistics. And he needed to speak more languages so he could read research that was being produced mostly in Germany. And what happened was he needed an advance that had been made by a Czech monk by the name of Gregor Mendel, who had invented the theory of genetics. He couldn't understand the math. He couldn't understand the stats. He couldn't read the German. And the world passed him by. From the age of 50 until he died at 73, he never made another major advance. He wrote 11 more books, but he hated them. They were like straw. They were derivative. They were a copy of his old work. He wrote to his friends, life really doesn't have much purpose for me anymore because doing original research is something that seems beyond me. At 73, he died considering himself to be a failure. He could have been the man on the plane behind me that night. Now, most of you didn't know this about Charles Darwin because he's so famous today. He's buried at Westminster Abbey. He's a hero. And certainly the man on the plane will be remembered as such as well. But that's not the point, is it? It's not the point how we're going to remember them. It's a point how much we enjoy our lives. Why was this happening to Darwin? Now the, the next question is, is that a normal thing? I showed you the research about people who are disappointed later, the striver's curse. It is absolutely a normal thing. In the 1950s, social psychologists were developing a theory of human genius. And what they noticed is that there are two kinds of geniuses, those that develop really early and those that develop really late. The early geniuses are the innovators, the people who crack the code, come up with an invention, develop something that has never existed before. The later geniuses, they're not the innovators, they're the sages. They're the great teachers who illuminate the world based on everybody else's ideas, where they combine them in new ways. The first kind of geniuses are Mark Zuckerberg. The second kind of geniuses are the Dalai Lama. And those are the two types of genius. Okay. The interesting part about this is that as the years passed, we started to understand that actually everybody has both. 
Raymond Cattell, the British social psychologist, called the first kind of genius fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence is your innovative capacity, your cognitive horsepower, your indefatigable ability to work long hours and crack the code, answer questions that other people have. That increases in your 20s and 30s, but then it decreases in your 40s and 50s. Maybe some of you were unbelievably successful in your career as a lawyer or real estate developer or whatever you did, and you noticed in your 40s, you're getting kind of tired of it. One of the reasons that people start to burn out on their work in their 40s and 50s is because it's getting harder. It's getting harder to concentrate. It's getting harder to bring the discipline to it. And that's because fluid intelligence increases and then it declines in every field. The most amazing thing that we find is that it goes from air traffic controllers to electricians to machinists to, ma to musicians to lawyers and surgeons and everything in between. You get better and better and better, and then it gets harder and harder and harder. Now, if you try to stay on that first fluid intelligence curve, you're going to be pretty frustrated. And that's what Charles Darwin was doing. And the people who are identified as geniuses early on, they try to hold on to it. But they can't. That's the bad news. Now, the good news. There's the second type of genius that we all get, too. That's called crystallized intelligence. And it starts to increase in your 40s and it increases in your 50s and 60s, and it stays high in your 70s and 80s and even beyond. That's called your wisdom curve. That's your instructor curve. That's your ability to synthesize ideas and explain them in common, plain terms. That's why the greatest professors at my university, Harvard University, the best teaching evaluations, uniformly go to professors over 70 because they can explain things better. They have more capacity to use their wisdom to make people understand things they didn't understand before. So here's the deal. Charles Darwin couldn't get from one curve to another. But if you want to be happy, and this is the first habit of people who get happier as they age, is they jump from their first curve to the second curve. This is the first big lesson. For people who get happy, they need to go from innovation to instruction. And that doesn't mean you need to be a professor like me. That means you need to find out what wisdom means for you and how you can share it. As you get older, ask yourself, are you using your wisdom to share it with others more than you were? If you're doing that, you're on the right curve. On the other hand, are you struggling to stay good at what you were when you're in your 30s? Then you're on the wrong curve. Now, I told you about Charles Darwin. Let me tell you about somebody who did it right. And that's my favorite composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. I made my living as a, as a musician for a long time. I didn't have a standard academic career. I, I actually was, I was uh, invited to leave college in, when I was in my freshman year of college. It was, uh, it was a, a mutual decision, <laughs> me and the college. Um, you know, dropped out, kicked out. It's all splitting hairs at this point. <laughs> and I went on the road as a classical French horn player, which was my dream. For 10 years, I did this. My parents call it my gap decade. <laughs> and um, during that time, my favorite composer of music was Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, everybody knows who Bach is. Even if you don't really care very much about music, everybody knows who Johann Sebastian Bach is. He's 
probably the greatest composer who ever lived, the greatest genius of the high Baroque period. He was born in 1685, he lived to 1750, and in his 65 years he published more than a thousand pieces of music for every instrumentation. He was productive. By the way, he also had 20 kids, which is productive. <laughs> now, Bach was the greatest innovator in his 20s and his 30s of the high Baroque. Everybody loved Bach. Princes sought him out to give him commissions to write this amazing new type of music. But when he was 50, it all came screeching to a halt. What happened? Music passed him by. As a matter of fact, one of his sons, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, CPE Bach, actually invented a new style of music called the classical style, and it took Europe by storm, and his father couldn't keep up. The, 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 the high Baroque style of music that Johann Sebastian Bach was writing sounded to them like disco does to us today, like a timepiece, like a throwback to a, 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 an, a, an era that we feel a little bit embarrassed about, quite frankly, the 70s. <laughs> so what did he do? What did Bach do? What did the Bach the father do? He could have been angry. He could have been raging against his decline, shaking his fist at the heavens. He could have been resentful about his son who changed music. His son became the most famous composer in Europe, supplanted his own father. That's not what he did. He re-engineered his career. He went from the greatest innovator in music to the greatest teacher. He developed a whole studio of students at the Thomas Kirchner in Leipzig. He was surrounded by organ students and choir pupils and he had, it's a little less sexy than it was before, a little less money than it was before, but he was happier than he'd ever been because he went from being a, an innovator, a cowboy, a sole proprietor, to sharing his wisdom with a spirit of love by building up other people, which was ultimately the most satisfying thing that he could do, which points out a truth. People on their crystallized intelligence curve are happier than people on their fluid intelligence curve because they're serving others. And that's the best way for you to be a genius, is to lift up other people around you, to be beloved. He had cracked the code by accident. Now, when he died, he was working on a textbook, which is what teachers do. It was a textbook which was actually a bunch of fugues and canons that were just an explanation, just a, nothing more than a, 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 an exploration in this old style. High Baroque. Maybe somebody will want to look at it at some point, he thought to himself. He died while writing one of them, and his son, who had supplanted him, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, wrote in the margin, at this point, the composer put down his pen and died. Strong finish. Now, <laughs> that piece, that textbook that he wrote, today is played in concerts. Imagine a textbook so beautiful that people read it as literature. He had no idea. It was a hundred years after he died that he got the status as the greatest composer who ever lived. He just thought, I'm a teacher. I'm serving my students. I'm serving the world. I'm sharing ideas. He was surrounded by his children and his grandchildren and his students. And in a prayer, he passed away. He cracked the code. So what was he doing? Number one, he did jump from his fluid to his, his crystallized intelligence curve. Such a beautiful thing to do that we all can do because we know it's there. He didn't. He did it by accident. Darwin didn't, and Darwin wouldn't do it. 
We can. It's the bottom line. Whether you're 25 or 45 or 65, know that curve is either coming or here and get on it. That's lesson number one. But he did some other things as well. Let me tell you two things that Bach did as well that made it even better. Number one, and this is something that all people do who get happier as they age. This is a habit of the happiest older people. They learn to stop adding things to their lives, and they start taking things away. Now, years ago, when I was president of the American Enterprise Institute, I was traveling a lot to Taiwan and for, you know, state visits. And if you don't know, if you've never been to Taiwan, there's one thing you have to see, which is the Taiwan National Palace Museum. It's the world's greatest collection of Chinese art and artifacts. They go back 8,000 years all the way to the present. It's incredible. It would take you days to look at. So I went there. I wanted to take a visit, but I knew that if I just kind of start wandering around, I won't appreciate anything. I'll, the only thing I'll remember is the snack bar. I thought to myself, I'm going to get a guide who can really help me appreciate this by just looking at a couple of things and who can explain the deep philosophy behind them. He was a philosopher, and he had studied Western and Eastern philosophy and Western and Eastern art. And we were looking at this two-ton block of jade carved into the, the, a, a Chinese ancient village. Unbelievable. Beautiful. I said to him, what's the philosophical difference between this Chinese art and what we do in the West? And he answered my question with a question. He said, answer me this. What do you think of when I say a work of art that is yet to be started? And I said, I don't know, an empty canvas. He said, correct. We think of a block of jade that is yet to be started to be carved. I said, so what's the difference? He said, you think that art has to be added up and created from nothing. We believe art already exists and we need to take away the parts that aren't the art. And he said, that's the difference in the way that you see success and we see success in life. You see your life as an empty canvas to be filled up with brushstrokes. We see our life as a block of jade to be chipped away until we find ourselves. I thought to myself, you know, that's fine and good, but you know what? I don't have to choose. See, the fluid intelligence curve, the first half of my life, is a Western work of art. I'm going to add those brush strokes. I'm going to build my life. I'm going to do it with my innovation and my hard work and my motivation and merit. Absolutely. But after a certain point, I can't add more brush strokes because it won't look like anything at all. It'll just be dark, obscure. There's nothing beautiful that can come after that. So at that point, i got to change the metaphor. I need to start seeing my life as a block of jade to be chipped away so that I can find myself within. So here, here's what we need to ask ourselves. In the second half of our life, are we spending enough energy taking things away or are we still trying to add? I see my friends, many of my friends, who've not thought about this deeply, they say, you know, I know what I want. I know what I want. I think I'll finally be happy if I get a boat. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe you're just adding brush strokes to your canvas. Now, there's a way to think about this. Satisfaction is a funny thing. We all think, as did the man on the plane, work, work, succeed, succeed, get to the finish line, enjoy it forever. And it doesn't work because it can't work. Satisfaction doesn't last. It doesn't last for anybody. Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. Yes, you can. You can't keep no satisfaction. 
That's the truth of life. So what do you need to do to crack that code? And the answer is this, which follows on the metaphor of taking things away. Your satisfaction formula is not a function of what you have. It's what you have divided by what you want. Now, remember your high school fractions. When you increase the denominator of a fraction, the number goes down. You want to know how to be less satisfied? Explode your wants. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. More brush strokes. More brush strokes. Getting sprawling the denominator, your satisfaction equation, like the suburbs of Atlanta, as far as the eye can see. You need a wants management strategy, not a haves management strategy. So you don't need a bucket list. You need a reverse bucket list. Put your hand into all your cravings and sticky attachments and say, I don't want this anymore. I don't care about this anymore. I'm not attached to this anymore. And watch your satisfaction grow. His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says, stable and lasting happiness doesn't come from getting what you want, but wanting what you have, which is the same idea. And that's what all people who get happier as they age have found out that they're masters at taking things away and getting happier as they do. Bach did that as well. He threw away his fame. He threw away the relationships that were unproductive and toxic. He threw away many of the things that he considered to be dear, all of the souvenirs of the successful life. And he got happier along the way. But there's one last thing that Bach did that we can all do, that all happy people do as they age, which is that they understand the source of their ultimate happiness. Maybe for the first time. You know, I deal a lot with CEOs, teaching at the Harvard Business School. I'm talking to CEOs all the time. And the weird thing I notice about CEOs is that they're always surrounded by people, but they're some of the loneliest people I've ever met. How can you be surrounded all day with people? And they say they have a ton of friends. How many friends do you have? 50, 100, 200 friends. Deal friends, not real friends. And you know the difference, don't you? This is something that if we don't realize, we wind up lonelier than we started out with no friends at all. It's an interesting metaphor that, that very successful people often have. Is that the, the first psalm talks about the righteous man who, who, who exists by streams of water. It's like a solitary and soul and uh, a strong, isolated individual that's completely self-sufficient. That's actually a pretty interesting metaphor. I remember considering this when I was in Aspen, Colorado, looking up at an Aspen tree, so beautiful, so strong on its own, like a strong person. Here's something I didn't know about the Aspen tree. It's actually not a plant, not one plant. All of the Aspen trees in Aspen, Colorado are one plant. They have one root system. The world's largest living organism is called Pando. It's a stand of aspen trees in Utah. It's 106 acres. It's 6 million kilograms of wood, one plant. If you see an aspen tree, that's not a plant. That's just one shoot out of the same root system. And here's my point. As you get older, you have to realize that that's you too. That the illusion of your individuality is holding you back. It's holding me back. You want to get stronger? then you got to work on your root system. you got to look at the shoots out from the same root system around you and build them up, which is what people naturally do on their crystallized intelligence curve. The, your success is not the sum of your achievements. Your success is the sum of the love in your life. Now, 
What can we learn from all this? This is a sampling of what I've written about in this book, but the whole bottom line is this. You can be happier at 75 than you were at 25, or 45, or 65, but you got to know the tricks. Mother Nature is not going to lay itself out for you. Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. It's up to you. And if you do these things, I'm completely convinced. Why? Because I'm doing them, and I'm happier now than I was 10 years ago. I'm on my crystallized intelligence curve. I quit my job and became a professor again because, look, i got to eat my own cooking as a social scientist. And I can tell you that I've never been happier in my life. Now, part of that is sharing these ideas. And part of sharing these ideas means writing a book and going and talking about it with people who can use the ideas. I couldn't actually express these things were it not for you. And so here's the last trick of all. If you truly want to be happy, if you want to have more love, if you want to be fully on your crystallized intelligence curve, you have to remember the things for which you're grateful. And right now, I'm deeply grateful for you. Thank you. Hey, Scorecasters. It's Vanessa back with you for just a minute. See, didn't I tell you he'd pack in the advice for leading a happier life? And he's not done. We have lots more to come as Sally Bradshaw puts him on the spot with some very direct questions about how we can put all this into action and also about how we can help heal our political divide. But first, we want to take a quick break to share a message with you from a podcast that we learned about through our friends at the Democracy Group. Check it out. This is from the Democracy Decoded podcast. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. There's no getting around it. There's a lot to be frustrated about. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? I'm Simone Leeper, host of Democracy Decoded, a podcast where we examine our government and discuss innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season one, we'll take you on a journey where we delve into the nuts and bolts of our campaign finance system. We'll look at the effects of secret spending at both the federal and state level, explore where and how foreign governments are spending to attempt to influence American elections, and investigate the fight against the outsized influence wealthy special interests have on local elections. Democracy Decoded is a production of Campaign Legal Center. Find us at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back to the program. Let's bring in Sally Bradshaw, owner of Midtown Reader, to lead us in the Q&A. That was terrific. So it's, it's like being on stage with Elvis if you're a nerd. <laughs> like you're like Elvis for nerds. This is such a thrill to have you here, Arthur. And I want thank to take Sally. a minute and thank all of you for coming. We are a remarkable community because we have the Village Square, which tries to bring together people who are very different we all disagree on a regular basis, but we try to do it in the right way. And hearing from you, that's been so much of your mission, so much of what you've talked about, and hearing how we can carry that into the second curve is a real treat. So thank you thank for being you, here. I love the book. Thank you. It's amazing. Thanks. I feel like I'm in my second curve, yeah. um, doing something completely different 
But I have to ask you, what was the hardest of the seven lessons for you? You say yeah. you're happier than you've ever been, but yeah. of the seven lessons, what was most difficult? So one of the things I didn't talk about was one of the things that holds people back from getting off their first curve, which is an addiction. Now, I've studied addiction a lot, and many of you understand enough about the neurophysiology of addiction to know that behind all human addictions lies a, uh, a neuromodulator called dopamine. I mean, most of you know something about dopamine. Dopamine is a neuromodulator that's produced by the human brain. And it's the, it's the, the hormone, basically, of desire, of anticipation of pleasure. So when you get kind of good at something and you want something, that wanting, that craving, that's dopamine in your brain that's telling you, hit the lever, get the cookie. You know, have the drink, whatever it happens to be that you're really good at getting pleasure from. And all addictions, whether it's a gambling addiction or drugs and alcohol, they're all implicated dopamine. This is what's behind them. Well, that's actually, none of those things is the big addiction for strivers. You know, the people who are identified as hardworking, as talented, as smart, having a lot of success early on, they're success addicts. Now, what's success addiction? That's where you... Yet you get the achievement, you get the grades early on, and people give you admiration and affirmation, probably your parents, a lot of other people as well, and your teachers, and you go from thing to thing, and you do really well, you win the election, you win the, you, you get the promotion, you get the raise, that's getting the cookie, hitting the lever, getting the dopamine again and again and again. And when I talk to people who are chained on their first curve, and writing it down into the cellar and frustrated and angry, they're success addicts, and they just... They just don't want to let go. They just don't want to let go. So letting go for me was really hard. Like I had the best job in Washington, D.C. I was the CEO of maybe the world's greatest think tank. Nobody walks away from these jobs. Nobody walks away from these jobs. But I had the data in front of me. I had to do it. I had to do it. So here's how I kicked it. You know, because it felt like I was getting worse at what I was doing, even though I was in the prime of life, which is what people feel like when they're in their 40s and 50s and burning out a little bit. And I thought of this metaphor that really helped me a lot. I mean, it's in consultation with the research, et cetera, but I'll tell you the metaphor. And this, this helped me get over this, to jump from one to the other, to actually make the jump. When I was a kid, I was crazy about fishing. And, and I remember the first time, I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And in the summertime, I would go to Lincoln City, Oregon, on the rocky, rugged Oregon coast. And I remember the first time I tried fishing in the ocean. It was completely unsuccessful. I was there for a couple of hours, didn't even get a bite. Very frustrating. And, and maybe 11 years old. And this old wizened mariner from the, from the town comes walking up. And he says, hey, he says, I've been watching you, kid. You know, these days that would get you arrested, but in those days it seemed okay. And he, and he had his fishing pole too, and he said, I've been watching you, kid. You getting anything? And I said, no. You getting any bites? I said, uh-uh. He said, it's because you're doing it wrong. So what do you mean? He said, you got to wait for the falling tide. I said, what's that? He said, that's when the tide is going out really fast. And there's a point, if you're watching the tide in a rocky, craggy area, where suddenly it seems like the whole tide speeds up and is zooming out. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense because all the fish are gone during a falling tide. He said, nah, that's when the plankton and bait fish are stirred up and the game fish will bite anything. It's happening in half an hour. Just wait. You'll see. Sure enough, after half an hour, he says, now. And we throw in our lines and we're pulling them out one after another. We pull out 20, 25 fish. We're exhausted half an hour later. We're sitting on the rocks and he's getting all philosophical at this point. And he lights up a cigarette and he says, kid. During a falling tide, you can really only make one mistake. 
And I said, what? He said, not having your line in the water. You get my point, right? When you're losing something, when you're losing a natural ability, when you're feeling a sense of loss about yourself, when you're feeling a sense of frustration about what you once were good at, or, or anything that you consider to be one of your strengths when it's in decline, that's a falling tide. That's the time to get your line in the water. That's the time when you have the most opportunity, not the least opportunity. Don't waste it. If you feel a sense of loss, if you feel bereft in a sense of grievance because of the things that are not the way they once were, that's when you know things could be really, really good. But you got to get your line in the water. And I thought, that's it. And that's how I solved it. That's how I kicked it. That's when I quit my job and moved to what I'm doing now. And it's never been better. But I had to trust. I had to trust. I love that. One of the things you didn't really address when you were talking is the power of the transcendent. We talked yeah. about this before, and that's a big part of the second half of your book. Can you talk about that and also talk about, I guess, the science behind why people, many people come to that later in life? That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, this is one of the things that it's in the book. It's one of the great habits is that people who are happy in the second half of life, they don't all get a traditional religious faith, but they walk the spiritual path. And by that, I don't even necessarily mean a traditional religious path at all, but they're, they rather they become comfortable with the sense of the transcendent, something that's bigger than they are. One of the great frustrations really in life that you can't quite get your mind around, that young adults, that my students are really struggling with, is that life when you're a striver it's just, it's like watching the same obsessively boring sitcom over and over and over again. My stuff, my life, my car, my school, my job, my money, me, me, me. It's so boring. And you can't look away. You're looking at it compulsively over and over and over again. The transcendent path allows you peace to zoom out on that. Happy people as they age are better and better at zooming out and seeing themselves in perspective. The Dalai Lama always says, Dalai Lama has a huge impact on me because I've been working with him very closely for the past 10 years. And he, he, wrote, he endorsed this book, as a matter of fact. And he always says, every time I see him, he says, remember you are one in seven billion. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a speck. I'm insignificant. I'm an ant. Now, he's saying zoom out because there's a big adventure out there. Looking down on yourself and everything else, it's so good. Don't worry about social comparison. Don't worry about the ordinary things. Don't worry about what you're wearing today. Think about the big picture is what he's saying. That's been enormously helpful to me. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm a Roman Catholic. It's the, literally, my Christian faith is literally the most important thing in my life. How did I learn that? I learned that from lessons like this. You know, I'm able to walk the spiritual path. And it was around age 50 or so. When I started to understand exactly, look, I'd been practicing Christian my whole life, but it was only at that point where I said, ah, you know, this, now this is finally giving me peace because it's helping me not to focus on me for the first time. And that's one of the key characteristics that all happy people have as they age. If they focus more on themselves, woe be unto them. If they focus less on themselves, life gets better and better. So to that point, talk about love your enemies a minute. The yeah. book before strength to strength. That's really hard to do yeah. right now. But it, I mean, that is a religious teaching. Yeah. Can we get there? What do yeah. we have to do? So the greatest and most transgressive of all of the teachings that has truly changed the world more than any other in human history is contained in the fifth 
chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew, the 44th verse, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Completely counterintuitive. Now, this comes not just from an original you know, thought, immaculately conceived. This is from ancient Judaic teaching as well. Do not oppress a stranger, for remember that you too were a stranger in the land of Egypt. These ideas are ancient in, 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 in the Judaic tradition and many other religious traditions around the world, but, but made most common to us in the New Testament of the Bible. Why is it important? Because that's the everlasting renewing teaching that we need. Here's the key thing that Buddhist practitioners will often say, I destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. By which they don't mean I want to destroy another person. You destroy the illusion that somebody was your enemy when you make that person your friend, and you make that person your friend on purpose. St. Thomas Aquinas said that love is to will the good of the other. There's nothing sentimental about that. It's hard-edged. It's, it's real work. It's the village square, my friends. That's the act of love on purpose is what it comes down to. You want to love your enemies? You can. You can. You have to decide to do that. And in so doing, you realize that they weren't your enemies after all. And that's the secret for what we need in America. Quite frankly, we need leaders who propagate that message, who do this, who do exactly what you're trying to do here in the village square writ large. Right now, we have a polarity of fear in our country. The reason we have so much polarization is because we are propagating fear. And fear is the opposite of love. More love means more acts of love that we decide to commit, particularly for those for whom we don't feel warmth. Martin Luther King, so beautifully in 1957, preaching a sermon on Matthew 5.44, he said, Jesus didn't say to like your enemies. To like somebody is a sentimental something. He commanded us to love our enemies because only in loving our enemies can we bring them to redemption. And by the way, only in loving our enemies can they bring us to redemption too. So that's the secret. Let's build up leaders no matter what they... Don't, that doesn't mean agree. <laughs> I mean, ag- agreeing is mediocre. This is a country based on the competition of ideas where iron sharpens iron. But be grateful for the people who, agree, who disagree with us. Have them make us better. Persuade them and be persuaded by them. That's our only hope. But that's always possible. And it's a joyful task. So you say in Love Your Enemies, you can't win an argument. What yeah. do you mean by that? Yeah, this is an ancient not, and, and sort of an American teaching. The, you know, the, the, the world's greatest self-improvement writer, who's not me, it's for sure, it's Dale Carnegie, who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, which sounds terrible, like it's a way to bend people to your will. It's actually a beautiful book about, about, about ethical teaching and treating people with love and respect. That's what that book is all about. And he has this little poem. I don't know why it came to me. But he says in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he always just had this little verse he would say to himself when he's in an argument. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. (laughs) The truth is nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. You wouldn't know that listening to American politics today, would you? But the point is everybody's playing to the base. Everybody's throwing stakes out to the others, saying that you're right and everybody who agrees with us is stupid and evil. That's a self-defeating plan. If you believe that your, your gift, your, your, your values are important, you should treat them always as a gift, never as a weapon. Because to treat your own values as a weapon is to eviscerate their moral content. And that's systematically what we're doing in this country. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you're yeah. not a politician. Yeah, that's you true. You don't like politics. America's not ready for a bald president. <laughs> 
I, I Except for Lee. <laughs> yeah. I know you believe strongly in the power of ideas. There was a time when that seemed to be more of a priority for both parties. Yeah. How do we get back there? And the second half of my question is specific to the Republican Party, yeah. my former party. Can we get back there? Yeah, so here's the opportunity. It's a falling tide, folks. It's a falling political tide. Get your line in the water. 93% of Americans say they hate how divided we become as a country. So why do they keep voting for the politicians who are dividing us? Why do they keep tuning into the television networks that tell us to hate our neighbor? Why do they keep doing that? And the reason is because they're more worried about the other side's bully. And they keep going with their own bully. Effectively, that's what's happening. We need more solidarity in which we recognize both as bullies. Now, when you hate, somebody's profiting, and it's not you. There's, when I say 93% of us hate how divided we become as a country, that means 7% don't hate how divided we become as a country. That's the bad news. And those 7% are in media, those 7% are in politics, those 7% are in the social media getting their jollies when we insult each other and getting followers as a result, and we need to fight back. And the only way we can do it is to fight back against people on your side. See, when you fight back against the other side, nobody cares. It's a little bit self-interested. It seems a little bit self-dealing, doesn't it? If you're willing to stand up and say, no, 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 that's not my party like you did. That's not my party. Then we've got a fighting chance. And by the way, two years, four years, six years is not that long. This is a country that's gone on a lot longer than that and the human race a lot longer than that still. We got plenty of time to make progress. We just need to band together and do the work and enjoy the work while we do it. I, I love being here with you. I love having dinner with you. And I know you're having a great time too because you're with all of these people and you disagree and you're having a good time. That's the joy that we need to bring to the rest of the country. Look, this isn't a, a local event, this is a movement. And that's actually what we need. And I believe that not just the Republican Party, the Democratic Party too, because they're both in the same world of hurt. They're in the same, everybody's stupid and evil except my party, except the people who believe exactly what I do. This is the opportunity that both sides have. And I, I honestly think that we will get back to a love polarity as opposed to a fear polarity. But it's going to start with us, maybe on March 8th, 2022 in Tallahassee, Florida. Let's make it so. Nice. So we're going to open it up to the audience. And Christine, you're ready with the mic? Or you have a question back there? Um, we do. We have one so far that says it's right kind of on the topic that you're on. I've discovered that we are all astronomically unique. Please comment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole idea that each one of us is, is, uh, is a unique child of God is one of the fundamental ideas of all of the... Abrahamic religions, but you know, really most religions around the world that were beloved by God, that were in unique in this particular way. But that uniqueness per se, coming from the Father, coming from the Heavenly Father, makes us all sisters and brothers. And so it really depends on what we're talking about. Look, each tree has unique aspects to it, but each tree is actually part of the same root system. What are you going to focus on? You can focus on your uniqueness, and, and in there, thereby doing, you can focus on how every tree is a little bit different than you and how you should hate all the other trees because they're different than you. But that's not the point. Celebrate your own uniqueness, but also celebrate the fact that we all are in the same root system. These are not ideas in tension. These are ideas that are entirely consistent and beautifully consistent as well. One of the things that I love about the United States is that we're so 
we celebrate the fact that everybody's different and we're, we're the same in our difference. That's when we're at our best. You know, it's the whole idea of the, how, how torqued and, and, and twisted the idea of diversity has become. Diversity is the most beautiful thing ever. You know, I love the fact that all of you are really different than me and we all love each other in our difference. And that's the, the most unusual thing that, that is kind of unique to our culture. So these are the two ideas that I think that actually should bring us together is our, our sameness and our difference in perfect harmony. You told me that America is a nation of striving riffraff. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. And that that's why you loved America. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, we all have, everybody in here, we have different stories. Every single one of us has a different story in here, which is part of the uniqueness. You know, some of your ancestors were, you know, struggling to dig potatoes out of the ground in Ireland. And some of your ancestors were running away from some godforsaken shuttle. And a lot of our brothers and sisters were brought here involuntarily. But let me tell you what we all have in common. We all descend from ambitious riffraff. And we're proud of it. We're the only country in the world that's proud of descending from riffraff. Which is such a beautiful thing. It's like everybody's bragging about how poor their grandparents were. It's like, yeah, yeah, my, grand, my granddaddy was a rich guy. And I kind of I I piddled it all away. Nobody is proud of that. You know, you're proud of the fact that, like, I'm looking at Al here. Your grandparents, they're not gentry. On the contrary, look at you. Look what you did. This is America right there. I love that about us. I love that about the fact that we want this for ourselves, that, we, that we're ambitious and our parents would be proud of us. I'm so proud of my own kids because they've made something out of their lives. They're, this, they're the entrepreneurs of their startup lives. This is the only place where we can do that. And the only way you can do it is if you don't feel like you're destined for some sort of greatness is programmed into your genome or culture. You get to build it your own way. That's the way I want it. Do you have another question, Christy? Dominic's got oh, one. Dominic's got one. Well, we're, we're facing this uh, obvious international challenge with uh, our brothers in Ukraine, and it's a geopolitical challenge. There's a lot of sides to the story, but where do you see that we can bring some world order and uh, the rule of law and some ultimate international peace? That doesn't mean one side's right, one's the wrong, but how do we get there? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we sort of all understood and agreed on, and not everybody, because there's nothing that everybody agrees on in America, but as a, a firm majority of the American population agreed on, is that the United States is a gift to the world. That, you know, we're not perfect, tons of sin in our past, many mistakes, but net, net, come on. This, is, this country is a gift to the world, and you know, we are given power as a nation to use benevolently. Is the only empire, it's what Thomas Jefferson called the empire, either empire of liberty or empire for liberty. Nobody quite knows what the preposition was at this point, but it doesn't matter. This was not an empire to subjugate other lands in the hinterland, to take away their resources, to, to enslave other people, which of course was America's great sin, but we move beyond. This is a country that wants to bring liberty to other people, and that's the point of the, the, the liberty of ideas, isn't it? If we can't understand that, that power is, can be used for good, we're going to lose it or we're going to use it incorrectly. And this is the biggest problem that we have as far as I can see today. The one thing that the Democratic and Republican parties can agree on today is that we misuse our power and we're a crummy country. That really bugs me. 
When we see the fringes of the Democratic and Republican Party coming together to denigrate the values that actually bring us together as the greatest, most upwardly mobile, charitable nation in the history of the world, give me a break. No wonder it's hard for us to wield power in a way that we can actually use it with confidence. But that's what we need to do, and that starts with our fundamental values. Our fundamental values are the ideas of democratic capitalism, that everybody can live up to the freedom that we enjoy in the United States, that everybody should be endowed by their creator with the same unalienable rights that we have, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And until we have that confidence, we will misuse power and we will lose the power that we have in this country and the country will be in decline. So values come first. And then power should be wielded always and everywhere benevolently in service of those particular values. That's one thing that Democrats and Republicans should be able to agree on today. Can you talk about that pursuit of happiness? I mean, it was a big enough deal that somebody put it in the Declaration of Independence. And yeah. it certainly has been a topic of your books. Yeah. So people have often wondered, why did Thomas Jefferson write about the pursuit of happiness? Which is a very radical thing. You know, it was historically the case that Happiness was defined as a good life well lived by the ancient Greeks. And by the Enlightenment, it was something that, that the, the wealthy gentry could have, but it was certainly not a, a, a democratic ideal that everybody could define their happiness and pursue it. Thomas Jefferson actually wrote the Declaration of Independence. He mostly copied it from the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He's known as a great writer, but he wasn't. He was a great copier. Uh, George Mason wrote the Dec Virginia Declaration of Rights, and, and Thomas Jefferson... And, wrote, copied it, and, and the Virginia Declaration of Rights says that we have certain promises, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, which is a Lockean idea, a John Locke's concept of natural law is the pursuit of property. Thomas Jefferson put in the pursuit of happiness later, which is the most radical turn of phrase, just this weird little thing. He's asked near the end of his life, why did you write about the pursuit of happiness? And he said, and I quote, I was taking dictation from the American mind. That was an American idea that you, you riffraff, can define happiness and pursue it as you see fit. That is the ultimate entrepreneurship. See, in my business school, we talk about making entrepreneurs. I mean, you get startup funding and seed capital and round A and round B and $10 million of somebody else's boring. You want to know real entrepreneurship? It's the startup of you and your life. It's bringing the, the love in your heart and making it explode in, 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 in astronomical new ways to create value with what your life is really all about. <laughs> That's why I teach leadership and happiness and not accounting. <laughs> I got nothing against accounting. I mean, like, trust me, I have an accountant and it's tax time, so I'm really grateful for my account. But my point is... The accounting of happiness is a different matter. And, and, and Thomas Jefferson is the one who launched this whole concept that you are the entrepreneur of you, you Inc., and the denomination of your fortune is happiness as you define it. That's a big responsibility, but it's an incredible adventure at the same time. No wonder we're such a great country. No wonder. Let's not squander that. Talk about bucket list for a minute, because in your new book, you sort of seem to indicate bucket list are not a great thing. But surely you have a bucket list. Yeah. No. So I talked about it a little bit in my remarks, which is that, you know, the idea of getting more and more and more and more. That's the bucket list. You know, every year on your birthday, take a list of all of your attachments and cravings and worldly desires and make a list of them. And then, and then look at that list and feel how unsatisfied you are because you're such a loser. You've never had a hot air balloon ride or something, right? <laughs> That is the secret to dissatisfaction. 
the, the right way to do it, basically, and this is the exercise. You know, my, my, my business students, they, have, they, get an, they get an exercise every week that they have to do over the weekend. They have to turn it in after that. Their homework. And their homework one week for when we're talking about the, the neuroscience of satisfaction is to, is to take the things, make a bucket list, all of your cravings and attachments and desires and dreams and, and things you have not achieved, and then put them in two lists. There's the worldly list, and there's the happiness list. What's on the worldly list? There's four, there's four kinds of, of, of bucket list items. Money, power, pleasure, and fame. Now, this is, I didn't make that up. St. Thomas Aquinas called these the four idols that are the substitutes for God. <laughs> the other, pretty good. The other side are your happiness, and this is, basic, this is based on the literature on the happiness, which is, you know, 10,000 research articles on, on the habits of the happiest people. And I've read this stuff, but you don't have to, so you can trust me on this. That the four things that all, the habits that all happy people have in common at all ages is faith, family, friendship, and work where you serve others. That's the big four. Everything else is extraneous to that. There are a lot of other things like health and a lot of other things that, you know, financial stability that go into not being unhappy and, 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 and serving your, your mental health, all of this stuff. But if you want to actually get happier and maintain a happiness portfolio, the habits are your transcendental or philosophical life, your family relationships, real friends, not deal friends, and work where you earn your success and you serve other people. So that's what I have on the other side of the paper for him. And I say, take all that bucket list stuff and say all of the stuff that's going into money, power, pleasure, and fame, detach yourself. I mean, you might get it. Good for you. It's fine. But it's not going to bring you true happiness, so don't pursue it. What about the things in your bucket list about faith, family, friends, and work? where you're actually serving other people. That's the stuff that should be on your real bucket list. And they come back with these extraordinary lists of things that they've dedicated themselves to throwing away and the things they're going to double down on. And that's a great happiness strategy. Yeah, but you didn't answer my question. What's on your bucket list? Oh, what's my bucket list? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there has to be something. <laughs> it's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, look, we all have feet of clay, right? And um, I was talking to, I have, a, I have a friend who's a writer that maybe you've heard of named David Brooks who is, shares my surname, but we're not related. And, and you know, he's, he's been writing for books like I write, but for a super long time. And he said, you know, I remember the first time I got to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I said, yeah? He said, I felt nothing. I said, huh. I said, let me try. <laughs> and and uh, last week, the book I talked about was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I didn't feel nothing. <laughs> I gotta tell you, it's pretty sweet. I gotta tell you, <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. But still, that's not a bucket list item. What's on my bucket list item? It's saying with my dying breath, thanking God for my life on earth. And my bucket list is looking into the eyes of my guru and my beloved wife, Esther, who's led me on paths of righteousness for these past 30 years. It's dandling my 11th grandchild on my knee. It's sharing ideas with people like you so that we all can love each other better, lift up our country, and be happier people. These are the true things in my bucket list item. There are four things in my bucket list. Love, 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 and more love. Okay, more questions. Yes, we have a question here from someone who called themselves Fluidity Ending and thanking you for letting them know that. So what impact do you think the pandemic has had on strivers? 
Has people getting off the hedonic treadmill been part of the great resignation? Yeah. So it, it's a good time to be writing about happiness coming out of the coronavirus epidemic in no small part because people are focused on, on, on the things that matter a lot more than they did. You know, you need crises. There's a whole literature on something called post-traumatic growth. We always hear about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a real problem. But post-traumatic growth is a lot more common than post-traumatic stress. We just don't hear about it as much. About 90% of the cases of real trauma in people's lives, they, they come out of the traumas in, trauma within two years, having grown as people and feeling like that the trauma itself actually made them a better person and a happier person, a more aware person, a more spiritually adroit person with deeper relationships, less worried about what other people think about them. It's kind of like a superpower, as a matter of fact, that people get. And a lot of people right now, we're not two years after the end of the coronavirus epidemic. I mean, if you came to Florida, you'd think it never happened. It's weird, you know. But in Massachusetts, it's like people are still walking around outside with their masks on. So it's highly asymmetric. But we've all, look, we've all suffered. Some of you have lost family members or, or lost businesses. But everybody has been afraid. Everybody has lived through a real trauma in this country. And, and we're all trying to learn about what this actually means. Now, one of the great advantages is that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. There's been a lot of technological change. We're able to do things. I'm more, I'm more productive than I've ever been. I can give a speech in Milan and a speech in Colorado on the same day, which is phenomenal, I guess. The problem with it is that with those productivity advantages that come from technological change, a lot of people have lost a lot more than they've gained. And they're starting to notice. For example, I do a lot of work on the neurophysiology of, of love, largely based in, a, in a, a neuropeptide that functions as a hormone called oxytocin. This is endogenously produced by the human brain in response to eye contact and touch. And you can't get it by Zoom. One of the reasons that people find that their jobs are just jobs for the first time, is because they're not getting any oxytocin, because they're lonely. And loneliness is a funny thing. It creeps up on you. Under ordinary circumstances, before the coronavirus epidemic, 9.5% of Americans were exhibiting symptoms of clinical depression. Today, it's 28% of Americans. Why? Because of loneliness, because of isolation, because of the physical separation that has actually occurred, and because we're actually not going back to the way that we were. Now, we're never going to go back to the way that we were, but let's remember the source of our solace, comfort, love, and happiness and peace, which is the love for other people, the oxytocin, if you want to be purely physiological about it, but it's more cosmic and miraculous than that. We're quitting our jobs because they've just become jobs. Half of your compensation thereabouts is actually the friendship and the warmth that you actually get. But it's weird teaching at a university now, isn't it? It's weird. It's like tumbleweeds are going down the halls. There's not another soul. It's lonely teaching at a university these days. It's less fun. Makes you think to yourself, I could do something else. Why? Because you lowered my pay. That's why. My pay and love. That's what's really behind the great resignation. You have another one? Yes. So this one's from Michelle. Is it possible to help someone else find happiness? Say, a partner or a friend. Yeah. This is the great thing. I teach this class called Leadership and Happiness for a reason. Leadership is in the title, and it's important. One of the things that I want to do is to help people understand that there's an algorithm for getting happier. You need to do three things if you want to get happier. Number one, you need to understand it. You need, 
actual understanding. It's called metacognition. Happiness shouldn't happen to you. People think about happiness as a feeling. It's not a feeling. Happiness as a feeling is like saying that your Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. It doesn't make sense. It's, that's an outcome of the Thanksgiving dinner. Ha the feeling of happiness is something else. It's a, it's a symptom of what's actually going on in your life, and you need to understand it. If you told me, Sally said, hey, I wish I knew more math. I'd say, get a book, right? Understand more math. You can't wish you knew more math. You got to do the work. That's number one. And there's lots of ways to do the work, by the way. You can take my class. You can read a book. You can read the research. You can talk to your grandmother. You can read Aristotle. You can read the Bible. There's lots and lots of ways, but you got to do the work. Second is you need to practice it. If you read a book about golf, you wouldn't be a better golfer. You need to golf. And so you need to take the ideas and apply them in your life and practice these things in your life. And third, and this is the most beautiful step of all, you need to share it. You need to share it with other people. Because only in sharing something do you truly understand the technology. My father was a math professor, said that he didn't really understand calculus until he'd taught it 40 times. Because only then was it truly in his prefrontal cortex. Only then was a truly metacognitive experience. A deep human but, but visceral understanding of what he was teaching for the first time. And the same thing is true with happiness. So what am I doing in my happiness class? It's I'm training teachers. These are going to be CEOs. You can be masters of the universe. I also teach a lot of politicians and future public policymakers these happiness ideas because I want them to embed happiness into their leadership work. I want them to be happiness teachers so they can be happier and pass on the idea. Yes, absolutely. You can't make other people happier, but you can share with them the secrets of happiness. It's just astonishing to me how much I get emails every day from my students who say, my life is different. It's not because of me. It's not because I'm this incredible teacher. But I'm, it's like you're opening up the windows, the shades for the first time, and light is coming in. They say, I can do that? I can actually be happier? I can think about things. I can make it so that I can manage my emotions, and they don't, imagine, and they don't, they don't manage me? I can just decide to be more grateful about my life? Yes, 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 yes. You can actually do that for people by showing them the way, modeling it with your life, and then teaching them the ideas. And people truly will get happier. That's why I've written this book. So you told me, back to the transcendent, that, I mean, you, and I knew this about you, you have always been a practicing Catholic, mm. but now your faith is more an invitation for you. What does that mean? Early on in life, a lot of people see their faith as an obligation. And the key way of moving from the fluid to the intelligence curve in terms of faith is to go from obligation to invitation. And, and it's, it's no small matter. You know, it's funny, because as, as some of you are Catholics like me, Catholics get to go to Mass every day. I mean, it's for, for those of you who are Protestants or not Christians, you're like, that sounds awful. That sounds like the worst. It's like, wow, that's a real, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a great advertisement. Going to, going to church every day, that sounds terrific. Now, but the whole point is it can become part of a lifestyle. Sundays are by obligation. Weekdays are by invitation. And that's kind of the way it is in life too, isn't it? It's everything is an invitation to your own transcendence as opposed to an obligation to behave in a particular way. And so when you're, it's funny, it's like habits are, are an interesting business and, and I, I've been, I, I go to the gym for an hour every day and have been for decades because I want to feel better. And at first, it was an obligation. 
But after about six months, it was an invitation, and I really look forward to it. I really like it. I want to do it. I miss it when I don't do it. And this is the whole point about the transcendental life, is actually going from obligation to invitation, because you, you simply find the, the perspective that it gives you and the space and peace that it creates for your life, something that's, that's just magnetic and irresistible. You have another one? Yes. Okay, so this question is from Jimmy. Do possessions matter? If so, what type? If not, when do you realize it? So possessions are, are, are necessary, of course. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine you know, getting through life in any sort of convenient way without having possessions. And there's a lot of theory in there about how natural law suggests that private property is important. And I actually honestly believe that private property is a critically important thing, that a totally collectivized lifestyle goes contrary to our intuitions. It makes it impossible for us to live in a civilized society when we don't have private property because we take care of things that are ours. Here's the key thing. Make sure that you own things and make sure that they don't own you. This, you know, I was one time giving a, a speech to super high net worth philanthropists. It's a lot of what I did when I was president of AEI. And, um, you know, people who were making gifts of 40 and $50 million to the causes that they talked about. And I was doing, you know, sort of this behavioral work on... You know, here's what the research says, Pi people will give away $50 million and the whole thing. This guy comes up after me and he says, you know what? I'll tell you the real reason that, you know, I give away $50 million. And I said, yeah, tell me. I want to know, right? He says, because when I do that, it becomes your problem. <laughs> he says, if I spend $50 bucks on a house, I own a $50 million house. What a pain. It's great for like six months. And then it's a $50 million house I have to worry about. Right? And the truth of the matter is that he had, there's nothing wrong with being rich. That's great. Because when you're acquiring a whole lot of wealth, you're creating jobs and opportunity and prosperity and growth, and you're giving hope to other people that they can lift themselves up. Bless you for that. But don't let your physical possessions and your money and your power and your fame own you. Make sure that you're in charge of those things. Here's the basic way to think about it. The idols that I talked about before, money, power, pleasure, and fame, honor is what St. Thomas Aquinas calls it. They're only good if they're instrumental to something else. If they're intrinsic, if they're the goal in and of themselves, then they own you. That's the bottom line. So say to yourself, why do I have money? What's the purpose of the money? It's the money. Too bad. That money owns you. If there's an actual reason that you can put your finger on why you would want to earn that money and why you have that money, good for you. Why do you want power? Because with that power, think of the things I can do for humanity. Think of the things I can do for the city. Think of what I can use that as a tool for. Good. He's like, I don't know why I just really want, I just love power. Huh, that's your idol. Fame is a terrible one. Fame is the only one of the idols that you can only ever be happy in spite of. Because fame always, and this is a lot of research on this, makes people unhappy. Fame, and by this I mean not just fame, but prestige, the admiration of strangers, makes you less happy. You want it in a weird, evolved way because it helps you to pass on your genes or something. And, you know, if you're known by more cavemen that you know or something. But today it's maladaptive. It's maladapted to our current scenario, to our current situation. And so the result of that is that it's the most metastatically dangerous of them all. And we see this constantly in the world of social media, in the world of reality television, et cetera, people ruining their lives. You want to see the unhappiest people you've ever met? Talk to a former child TV star. You know, so how many years did you spend in rehab? 
No joke, it's bad, and actually what happens to people because, because of this problem. So possessions, which are a broader category of worldly idols, are great, are good only, only if they're instrumental to higher order things that we want and we, we want to serve in our lives. So I, somebody shared a quote with me from Frederick Buechner recently, uh, the theologian, which reminded me of you. And I want to ask you about this. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What's your call? Is this your call? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, there's a, in every ancient philosophical and religious tradition, there's something called discernment. And the Buddhists have a word in Pali called panna. And that means the, the search for the right path, the search for right desire. See, this is what discernment is about. It's not about what you're supposed to do. It's about what you want. And most people don't know what they want. My students have no idea what they want. They want me to tell them what they want. They're looking for the Harvard Business School to tell them what they want. They want the world to tell them what they want. They don't know what they want. Discernment is about figuring out what you want. Panna for the Buddhists. For, in, and for St. Ignatius, the, the founder of the Jesuits, there's the... The, the discernment of spirits, which is the same thing. Lord, show me my desire. You know, Rabbi Hillel the Elder, 100 BC, talked about, if I am not for me, who am I? It's the, the process of discernment. All of us have to have to go through this process of discernment. And this is what I did before our, I went into this particular period in my life of looking at these ideas, talking about the things that we're talking about. I spent six months, 15 minutes a day on my knees, Lord, what do you want? I mean, if you pray to be shown your path, we'll be unto you because you'll be shown your path. You better be ready. And I quit my job. And I went to this. And I had no idea. I mean, again, I just had my line in the water is what I came down to. But basically, I devoted myself and I will devote myself for the rest of my life to lifting people up and bringing them together. That's my mission. That's what I'm going to do. And I don't know exactly what... what what it's going to look like at every single year, what form it's going to take. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life lifting people up in love and bringing them together in love. I can't think of anything better than that. Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I don't know about y'all, but I took a lot of notes. There's a striver's curse, fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence, deal friends versus real friends, and most exciting for me, who's not 50 yet, I am really looking forward to that 15-year bonanza coming up. You better be right about that, Arthur. Now, I'll tell you what's been on my mind since this talk. In the beginning, Arthur talked about our expectation that we'll be happier later in life and how we often feel let down when that doesn't happen. Well, that definitely resonates with me and actually reminds me of a lesson I learned growing up. I realized at some point that often the most anticipated days, you know, those big milestone days, like my birthday party or a big vacation or a holiday, when any sort of hiccup would happen on those days, it could take me into a place of real disappointment until I realized 
that life happens on those days too, just like on any other day. And that the expectations I had built up of it being the best day ever were causing me to feel disappointed when every single little thing didn't go my way. And on the flip side, I would notice that on, you know, some random Tuesday, when something unexpected and awesome happened, those days easily felt like the best days ever because I wasn't expecting anything other than a random Tuesday. So anyway, this has me now thinking of that bucket list part of the talk and how we expect that list of amazing experiences to really fulfill us and make us happy. And maybe it does for a minute, or maybe even worse, have you ever been in the middle of something supposedly incredible, and you're thinking to yourself, I'll enjoy this more when it's over, or the memory of this is what I'm after, or the pictures from it, or the social media post, that's what's going to make me happy. Again, likely just for a minute. So what Arthur talked about really makes sense to me. The need to find meaningful ways to spend our work time and our personal time and figuring out what really fulfills us and makes us happy. Okay, before we say goodbye, we'd like to give a huge shout out to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. We sure are grateful to them for their ongoing support. We're also thankful for Bill and Jill Maddox for helping to make this episode possible through their generous donations. To stay up to date with all that's happening with the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us and subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate you listening to And the Pursuit of Happiness with Arthur Brooks. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.